Speaking of Mississippi is produced by the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and made possible by the John and Lucy Shackelford Charitable Fund of the Community Foundation for Mississippi. A warning. While quoting a person during an event from his early life, our guest uses offensive language. An edited version is available. Bobby Rush belongs in a long line of Mississippi blues and R&B legends. The dynamic Grammy-winning showman has entertained countless music lovers as a headliner while sitting in with icons Howlin' Wolf, Muddy Waters, and Little Walter, or performing in the bands of Earl Hooker, Luther Allison, and Freddie King. After decades of living life to its fullest and playing hundreds of shows annually, Rush has set pen to paper to finally tell his life story. From his earliest days in rural northern Louisiana, to his years in Chicago, to his return to Mississippi. Welcome to Speaking of Mississippi, where we'll explore the landmark moments and overlooked stories of our state's history. I'm Chris Goodwin. Our guest today, Bobby Rush, was born in the 1930s to a family that had one dynamic internally, but another dynamic in public. How long did it take you to figure out what was going on? took me pretty much my lifetime to understand it, but I understood enough to know that it was a black and white issue. But but I didn't get the grip of it even to now because so many things have changed, but so many things remain the same. So I'm still fuzzy about what it was, what it is, and what it's going to be. point I'm getting to is that uh, everything that have been been before. Everything is now will be after I'm gone. Uh, we all away from this land. So overall, it was hard for me to come to the grip of it until I got probably 40 years old. And I realized she was doing what she needed to do to save my life, my daddy's life, and make a better way to get the thing that we need, not the thing that we want, the thing that we need out of stores and and out of uh, wherever she had to get it from that we didn't have hands-on to get it ourselves. Right. Uh, on our farm, my daddy was a farmer who could raise peanut, watermelon, chicken, horse, and cows, and milk and whatever, but we didn't have a way to get flour. And we had a way to get meal, but it wasn't a fine grain of meal because we had to take our corn to the meal and like to grind, grind it up to feed chicken. Right. And a lot of times we ate the cornmeal from that coarse grain. Yeah. It wasn't fine grain. Right. So we had to go to the store or to, to the white main store, we would say, to ourselves then to get it ground, get meal. And we had to get sugar. Because right. I, I came from a town where sugar and shoes was rational. Right. You had to have stamp to get them. Right. If I had, if my mother had 10 kids in, to go into school, she could only could buy 10 pairs of shoes. She had to go to the neighbor, someone else who had, was, 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 had shoes stamped, were left and borrowed stamped about it, shoes and sugar. If you didn't use all your sugar stamp, you could borrow it or give it to someone else. Right. So most of the time, I would, the 10 kids in our family, the five boys, would jump and run and play and wear the shoes out before the year was up. So we had problems getting shoes because we didn't have any more stamps. Right, right. 
in 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 but that now, part but, of Louisiana. But I'm, the reason for I'm mentioning this because my mama, being blue eyed and blonde hair, mm. she could get stamped when we, as a dark skin of people, could not get it. Mm-hmm. My mama could go to the stamp because she could be this white lady and go get stamps. Yeah, yeah. Your cousin, Son Scott, gave you your first <laughs> guitar. His Which, name was John. We called him Son. Yeah. Son Scott. That was my dad's uh, son. And my dad's son. You know, he wanted to get. He gave me a guitar. He, I don't think he really wanted me to have it at the time, but he was about 15. I was about eight or nine years old. And he fell in love with the girls. Yeah. And, I, and I noticed every time he get the girls around, and he said, Junior, I was, most of the time I said, can I play the guitar? No, man, get out of here. Get out of here, boy. But when the girls come around, he get talking and whispering, talking to the girls, and he would let me have it. Okay, I'll let you have it. So I would make it my business to go down to, to the neighborhood and say, hey, next Saturday, I'm going to be cooking. My daddy going to mm-hmm. be cooking. Why don't y'all come up to the house? Mm-hmm. I want them to come to the house so they can talk to their son. And then when he get wrapped up in the girls, man, he let me have the guitar. <laughs> so I sick the girls on him. <laughs> you thought you had kept that guitar hidden from your father at first. Well, see, my son, he gave it to me after, after, after a while. He gave it to me. I think if I had five strings, could have been four strings. One, some string, or either at least one string was yeah. missing. So I went and got this, got me a, a wire off a broom and made me another string, mm. which is not as fine as the one that come from the store. But nevertheless, my daddy told me one day, he said, Junior, I'm named after my father. He said, Brandon, get out here, boy. I've got afraid because how do you know he <laughs> have a guitar? I thought I had it here. Right. But then, you know, your mom and dad know everything. That's right. I went and got it out this barn. I had been up there for about four or five weeks. The sun was coming down on the barn, tin top. Yeah. It whopped the neck. Mm-hmm. I would take it to the mule trough or the horse trough or cow trough, what we call the trough where you yeah. water the cows. And I would dip it in there and let it stay 30, 40 minutes. Man, the neck was straightened back out. Wow. You know, and put in water. Yeah. yeah. Neck was straightened back out, you know. It wasn't a very good guitar. Now, when I look back on it now, not the expensive at all. One of them several book a guitar. A lot of folks so, learn to play on a K. Yeah. So I that's what it was. He came on a K. So I took it and my dad brought it to my dad. He sit down with his shirt off, just came out the field. My mother's in the kitchen cooking. He said, hey, boy, give me that guitar. He tuned it up a little bit. I said, tune it up. <laughs> Man. <laughs> my dad said, he tuned it up. Say, you ain't got a tune, boy. He got his shirt off. My dad is this black man who's looked like Mohan Rali, pick up a truck with his say, give me the guitar, boy. The, the, the guitar looked like a thimble in his hand, yeah. so he was a big man, you know. He strung it down. He said, let me play a song to you, boy. I used to play for a little girl when I was a little older than you. I wanted to hear it because I thought it going to be glory, glory, hallelujah. One of the best a preacher. I either by my mom, but it wasn't either one of them. He picked it up and he said, me and my gal went to check it in, honey. She fell down, and I saw something. I said, wow. <laughs> a preacher? <laughs> and my daddy? Man, I said, I said, daddy, sing it again. Now, now, what I wanted him to do to sing the next verse. Right. Because I thought the next verse was going to tell me what he saw. What the something and, was. Yeah, yeah, what the something was. Man, my guy went to check it, been hunting. She fell down, and I saw something. I said, daddy, sing it again. By that time, my mom was in the kitchen cooking. She said, <clears throat> <laughs> I mean, don't sing that kind of song to that boy. Right. 
But he went to sing it again, and my mom was getting close to him. I said, Daddy, Daddy, here come mama. He seemed like he didn't hear. I said, Daddy, how big was she? He's an old shoot, fat boy, 350 pounds, about like that. And he measured out. I'm a little boy. I don't know what 350 pounds is, but I know I know how wide that is. <laughs> He's about that wide. Now, I said, what's your hat on? He said, nothing but a dress, boy. Now, in my little mind, fat lady falling down with nothing on but a dress. Now, I want to see this. Yeah. I can't ask my daddy about this. Mm. You know, to, to me, there's no underclothes. Right. You know, right. as a little boy, I said, no yeah. panties on. Yeah. Right. You know, I want the master. I said, daddy. Tell me about it. And my mama was walking up. He said, me, my gal, what the drink? My mama was walking up. I said, daddy, take her mama. She fell down, and I kept running. <laughs> so I don't know what the song would have been. <laughs> my mother broke it up, man. My mother broke it up. You know. Mamas know how to keep it between the lines. Hey, man. <laughs> and then, right then, I knew at that age I, I, what I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. I want to be a blues singer. Mm-hmm. My daddy, in them time, in the Asian time, gospel guys and preachers especially talked about blues being devil music. Right. My, devil, my daddy never said that to me. Right. He never told me to sing the blues, but he never told me not to. First beat record for chicken heads, right? Man. Right. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. So when you were a teenager, you were in Pine Bluff, which was... Yeah. An important city, yeah, a big city compared to where, where yeah. we came well, up. Yeah, and you were playing house parties. <laughs> Tell me what those house parties were like. Did you oh, did you man. ever have a stage ever? Was there ever a PA or anything? Did no. you get paid by no donation or did they guarantee you anything? Yeah, they guaranteed me two dollars and fifty cents. <laughs> yeah, for Too me, fitting for me and for me and a drummer. <laughs> so it'd be you and you and a drummer, and would you be playing guitar and harmonica? I would play the both. I would do both, back, both. You know, me and the drummer, and a guy called Drum. We call him Drum because his dad owned a club called Drum, hmm. and uh, that's what he called Drum Goo. They call him. You know, <laughs> I think his name was Aaron. Whoever knows, but uh, uh, that's where I kind of got that. Uh, and I'm gonna do the ham bone because I had right. learned how to do the ham bone because I got a job from Elmo James on the ham bone. I, a, a rabbit foot hired me, but they came to Pine Bluff, Arkansas to do an audition. I didn't do the audition in Pine Bluff because I didn't want my daddy to know. And the people at the church, small town, didn't know out in uh, Cheryl's, Arkansas, that I was going to do the audition. If they hired me, I didn't want no, my daddy to know. You, you couldn't be rabbit. Emmett Ellis Jr. No, and no. being in the rabbit foot. No, with rabbit foot. No. So I had to look for me a name. Rabbit footed girls. So I was, yeah. So I looked for me a name for about, Gee, I, I, I was named Bobby Eidenhouse, Roosevelt, you know, because I'm not the president. That's yeah, a big name to yeah. me. So I finally come up with this name, this one syllable, Bobby Rush. Nobody called me Bobby. Nobody called me Rush. Everybody called me Bobby Rush. Bobby Rush, that's right. Yeah, Bobby that's Rush, right. You know, there's a plenty of Bobby, there's plenty of Rush, but ain't but one Bobby Rush, you know. So that, that's why, I, but when I, when I went to come to uh, Mississippi, I came down to uh Port Gibson yeah. to do my audition. A friend of mine brought me over on the truck and I did the audition. I was sitting back in the corner with my little guitar. I'm about 13 or 14 years old. I'm too young to be in that room. Right. The guy, and I said, the Elmo Jane went in, did his audition, come back. The guy said, you did good, pat him on the back. And when he left, these two white guys said, did you hear that 
and they cursed about it. That ain't sound like mm-hmm. yes, you know. I said, wow, they just told the man it was good. The next guy went in, Ruth John, what guy went in, told him the same thing. By that time, about two other guys had played. They didn't like none of the guys, what they was playing. Whatever it was they were doing inside, I couldn't hear it. Right. And they came back out. They said, what you doing here, boy? I said, I'm here to do an audition. What you do? I'm afraid to say I play guitar. Yeah. Because they turned the guitar players down. Right. They could play much better than I. Right. I said, I do a lot of things. He said, hey, hey, Sam, come out here. And he used the N-word. Says N-word, somebody he can do anything. What do you think about this guy? They were laughing about me. Man. They said, well, what can you do, boy? I said, I can do some everything. I got up and said, show me what you can do. I said, he said, you hide. <laughs> I got the job. And put a band together called Bobby Rush and the Four Jabber mm-hmm. with Moose John and Elmo Jane playing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I hired them. <laughs> <laughs> I hired Elmo, you know. Elmo didn't play with me but a time or two, but he had his thing going. Yeah, yeah. But, but at least I But got, he was being got, able to do something different, being able right. to handball like that, that, that yeah. got you into got rabbit into, foot minstrels. And then I did that for about a week. So before I even do the guitar and the harp thing, because he hired me as a bonus between the shows. I was an act between the shows, you know? So so you played bass. You could yeah. play bass. You could bass. play guitar. You could yeah. play harmonica. Yeah. When you did side gigs, when you sat in with other musicians, what all would you play? I didn't play I didn't play that much beside me. Be honest with you, and it's it's a shame. I jive the guys. Most guys would could play, but I'm not going to play. But, I mean, I'm a good front man. Yeah, yeah. And I was just, man, I had this gift to gab, man. Right. And the guy said, hey, man, you, you so you play piano? That's a little bit. Couldn't I play chord. Yeah. But I just, I said, but, hey, man, I got this harp. I'm going to do this. A lot of time I would do it with the harp. They would say, by yourself? And I just jive. Because Elmo James was good. Yeah. But I was good by myself. And he was just, how you do that by yourself? Right. You know, because Elmo James couldn't play by himself. He had to have a band to play, you know. B.B. King told me the same thing, you know. Some guys can't play by themselves, right. you know. Right, right. You know. So when you would when you would book a gig somewhere, would you decide how many folks to take with you, depending on yeah. how much money was with it? Depending on how much money. Most of the time— at that time, we could get about three dollars a piece, mm-hmm. get about nine or twelve dollars for the whole band. Right. I remember I was making seventeen dollars a night. First time I thought I was making seventeen dollars mm-hmm. a night for me and the mm-hmm. band, mm-hmm. and I paid Muddy Waters five dollars and fifty cents <laughs> in Argo, Illinois. Wow. On a Wednesday night, every Wednesday night, five dollars and fifty cents Muddy Water. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Well, you've played with so many folks, but you've also been loyal to the people who have played with you. Folks like James Hot Dog Lewis played yeah. keyboards with you for more than a quarter century. That's right. Uh, you've worked with the drummer Bruce Howard for even longer than that. That is seven years. Bass for more than 20 years. Uh, tell, tell me a little bit about. These guys kind of be like family, family to you. And you have, uh, you go to work a lot of time for the people who work with them. Sometimes I don't think they realize it and appreciate it. But nevertheless, that's what they understand. They don't understand what I go through with to be here. Right. And 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 today, most of the guys get paid a decent salary with me because 
sometime when you get through paying a band, it's nothing for me. Right. But that's because they think I'm in the position now that I'm rich and making all this money. Right. And I do make a dime or two now, but it hasn't been like that forever. Right. But, uh, but I try to be loyal to the people who've been loyal to me. Not because they was good, it's because they good intentions. Yeah. And they did the best. They did the best. Now I don't say the best they could do. They did the best of their knowledge. Mm-hmm. They wasn't, sometimes wasn't the best they could do. Right. The best that they knew to do. And sometimes you would have other folks on recording sessions with you. Ninety ninety percent of the time, because yeah. yeah. uh, most of the guys with me wasn't recording musicians. That's the difference. Because right. when you record, you got to be so precisely with notes and timing, and how you do it. And most of my guys with me. Then when this was the yeah, self live like, act, yeah, they were live act, and sometimes you just had to know to separate yeah. the live act uh, players from the from the recording session because a lot of time recording sessions are written in precisely where you're going. Right. Most of the time, the guys on the stage they're kind of doing it by feels and. It's good to go by field, but you got to be precise with right. notes too when you when you record. Right? Yeah, you you could take those recording musicians out, put them on the stage, and that's they wouldn't right. know that the stop was that's coming right. up. That the with folks the, could read with, your body language. That's tonight. right. That's right. right. That's right. Yeah. But but they're all important. It's it's like you know you could teach a man how to play a guitar hard, but you can't teach a man how to entertain a to entertain or be a performer. Right. You have to be born to do that. Right. You can't teach a man to do whatever. Press a do I do a few other people like. Right. But you can teach a man how to play instrument, but that's all good. Mm-hmm. All, you know, a cow is a cow, and a horse is a horse. One give milk and one pull a wagon. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but that's they're right. all good. But that's right. You know, Mississippi has been called the birthplace of America's music. At the Museum of Mississippi History, you can step through the doors of a recreated juke joint known as Lucille's Place play songs from Mississippi artists the Staple Singers, Muddy Waters, and Eddie Cotton Jr. on the jukebox, see a guitar and stage outfit worn by Ike Turner, concert posters, record albums, and more. The museum's Soul of the State Gallery showcases Mississippi's rich tradition of musicians, writers, and artists, and features quilts, paintings and prints, and play sculptures from bluesman James Son Thomas. When you lived in Chicago, there were some folks who had urged you to go play in Europe, but you you sort of resisted that. I did that with Muddy Water cause I, because I was this guy at one point, and I didn't take advantage of it. I was bigger than Muddy Waters in Chicago right. at one point. I was the guy living, working at Walden's Corner. I was the one who planted Bourbon Street down on Rush Street. Right. In Chicago, there were no black people playing there. There weren't no black people, you know, myself and a couple of other people who were playing the Playboy Club. I was one of the first guys who done it because uh, I tell it in the book how I got in there because the Capone took took a liking to me and kind of embraced me. I didn't know where Capone, right? But I but know his brother and the people in the Capone family, and I used that to get some things done. Cause when I would walk into chess record, they would whisper and say, that come over Al Capone boy. Yeah. 
and I would it would get out the way and stand back like I could come he coming through. Yeah, dang, dang, dang. <laughs> I didn't even know the man, you right. know. Now in this book, they probably won't come and snatch my neck off and they go, I just jabbed the man. I didn't know the man. <laughs> but I got what I wanted. So right. I come in and do my little recording. They say, hey, I'm a rest, you gonna pay up today? I said, Oh, let me talk to my boss. Mm-hmm. Let me go, man. <laughs> <laughs> I'm out with my masters of my own. <laughs> but they don't want to mess with me. That's right. That's right. <laughs> but anyway, I lied about that, man. Yeah. And everything about this book, I told them, I'll tell you so you know, everything about the book is the truth. But a couple of things I didn't tell the truth about, you know, I, I eat up my age when I was younger. Mm-hmm. And I said I wouldn't sleep with a fat woman no more. I lied about that. <laughs> but if you if 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 you go, if you want to hold me to the fire about yeah, that, right. then I ain't studying. <laughs> <laughs> when did you realize the importance of holding on to your publishing rights for your songs that you were writing? I didn't. Uh, I'd come through a mistake and accidentally. I didn't know about those things. <clears throat> it just happened. They be they thought I knew. Hmm. They said, "Well, hey, come on, Barbara Rush. Here's here's what happened. In the early fifties, I went to chess." Bo Dilly, myself, uh, Holland Wolf, not Holland Wolf, but that, Muddy Waters, Willie Dixon. I believe Sam Cooke had been there, but he probably was gone. But in that building that day, Jimmy Reed was there. Hmm. We all trying to get a job at chess. There was a pamper on the table that 10 and 208 was journeying. And I made a mistake, I either could, I don't know if it was a mix of mistake now, I think it's a mistake, but reading the pamper, and I told Bo Diddley, who was sitting next to me, I said, Bo Diddley, this is going to be good for us, man, as as, as colored men. Mm-hmm. We didn't say black at that time. Mm-hmm. As colored men, it's going to be good, but we're going to get represented in the same union as a white musician get represented. Hmm. He said, and he laughed. And Muddy Water laughed. That was Willie Dixon said. I don't know about that. And I didn't know how to take that. I didn't know what they were laughing at me, the way I speak from the South. Right. Or I didn't I didn't understand that. By that time, Phil walked out and he, and he said, What you got laughing about? He said, Well, you got this pamper over there, Barbara Rich said. He said, Barbara Rich Red. It said what he said. And he said, Who? Bo Dillis said, Yeah, Barbara Rich Red's pamper over there. And he read it. Said, and he, he looked at it. By that time, his brother Phil, Phil and Leonard walked yeah. out. He said, what is, what, what is this uproar here about? He said, Bobby Rush read some, come out the news, but a reunion's going to merge. He said, what that say, boy? And throw it back to me. He said, just like that. What that say, boy? Throw it back to me. I said, reunion's merging. He looked at it. He said, told his brother, he said, we can't use that nigga because he can read. Mm-hmm. So I didn't get the job. Mm-hmm. Muddy, all the guy got the job. So I never recorded for chess. I recorded at chess. Right. They recorded for chess. And you, as as we had talked about earlier, were going great guns in Chicago at the time. You were known for your, your live shows, yeah. but you had not recorded. You recorded your first song under your name in 1964, but you were dissatisfied with that recording. Three years later, you released two more singles, but they didn't really go far. But in 1967, you put out Socket To Me Boogaloo. Yeah. And it had a great funky bass sound, and it did get some. And I'm the bass player. Are you really? Yeah, that's me on the bass. Well, it was great. <clears throat> and you got, you did get regional attention off of that right. one. 
And then that sound is sort of what led to Chicken Heads, which has become a Southern Soul jukebox classic yeah, yeah. that, I mean, is sampled and used to this day. What happened in that in that period of time, because I was tied up, because of the Capone had embraced me, I was making more money than most guys in in Chicago. So why should I leave Chicago in my little mind? Right. That was one. Why should I leave Chicago? Right. Muddy Water begged me. Right. Let's go to Germany. Let's go to that. Ever been good for me. Right. But I missed that opportunity because I was this high paid. Well, well Buddy Guy and them wasn't getting the kind of money I was getting. Yeah. I was making 25, 20, sometimes $26 a night. How about that? Because <laughs> I was working two jobs, man. Yeah. Well, the other guy was getting fit twelve and fifteen dollars a night. Mm-hmm. I would go do a show over here, make me twelve dollars. Do a show and make me because I'm just fast dress. I run in and be there for special guests, two or three places a night. You know, and and for mm-hmm. a while, sold hot dogs at the same show that you were playing. <laughs> you would tell the audience that, man. <laughs> I was uh, maneuvering, man. I, I had this hot dog behind my station wagon hot dog stand. And I would eat so many hot dogs myself trying to, that's my cell punch. I said, man, these hot dogs is the best <laughs> hot dog in the world. And the guy said, where you getting from? I said, man, whatever, whatever they got out there, that's the, the hot dog, man. And I would eat one and advertise with the people, people go out and get my hot dog. Go out and get my hot dog. Man, I was so full of hot dog. <laughs> I'm trying to advertise it because I got to eat the hot dog yeah. to show them there's a good hot dog, man. And man, Eating up part of my profit, man. You know. <laughs> but I but I did well with it. When you said do well, you you made ten to fifteen dollars mm-hmm. a night in hustling a hot dog. Yeah. Cause at that time you could buy the hot dog for about eight cents. Right. Man. Right. And then you know, yeah. I do the bun all for about eleven cents. <laughs> but you had a family, you had you had your birth family to take care of yeah. too as well. Your your parents that you were you were sending money to. I mean, you you <laughs> had to hustle. Uh, as far as not just being able to concentrate on your music, you always had to have uh, a job in addition to your career, your music. I had a uh, big obligation, a big uh, overhead on me because I had two children was real ill. Right. And uh, very shortly in this book I tell about, there was three sister-in-laws I had when I got married at 18 years old to Hazel Adams. She had three sisters. When I moved to Chicago, I'd taken the two, three sisters with me. They thought I was their daddy. Mm-hmm. I was their brother-in-law. Then we had three children, and her mother and father come to live with me. That same year I moved, her mother and father passed in my house. A year later, one of the sisters passed, and I had a child. Four years later, the other sister passed, mm. next sister passed, my oldest child passed, the next child passed, then she, my wife passed, and my daughter and my son passed. That was all in my family. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot of sadness. That was all in my family. I had no, I had no, that's no yeah. immediate family, other than sister and brothers, and, you know. Right. And uh, then I got married again and had one child, and he's a, Right here in town, assistant yeah. chief for police right here. Yeah. For yeah. about 16, 17 years, That's right here in Jackson. So Sue was your first gold <laughs> record, and the first record that you made any money off the sale of the record itself. And after Sue hit, that was when you moved from Chicago to Jackson. 
And and when you came to Jackson, was that when you added the shake dancers to your live show? I had them before. I had I had them before, but just I couldn't afford them. Yeah. And it was it was it was a borderline thing with me with who I was trying to cross over to the white audience, but I didn't want to cross out. Right. But that white audience was looking at me like I was this kind of pimp kind of a thing. Right. And and I knew that, but I already knew there was I was a talk piece. I knew the girls. Was, and I was looking for the girl with the big butts. Right. I'm, I'm talking straight to you. Yeah. And I didn't want the little model to look like a model and what have you. Right. And all they cute. And I wanted one who could could just say, what's up? Wow. Yeah. You know? And, 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 and I kind of picked that kind of a lady to make me stick out for what I wanted to do. Right. But my first dancer was on Esther. What they call with Red Fox. <laughs> From the circuit. Yeah, probably, yeah. She was, yeah. <laughs> and she was 18 and 19 years old. The one on the Sanford song goes, what? Yeah. Look out, yeah, sucker. Yeah, yeah. She was 18 and 19 years old. But she was a comedian on the Chitlin circuit, She was a comedian right? on the Chitlin yeah. but, but circuit, but, but she was a snake dancer. And she danced. I didn't know she yeah, danced with you. And had a body. I mean, look good. I'm to my body look good. She always was kind of, not that Pleasant in the she face. Tall on the, she looked tall on the show. I don't know. Was yes. she tall in real life? No, no, she wasn't that tall. She, as Jim and Reese, she, she was just, she was just good looking. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, she, she wasn't that tall. She just was a slender lady. And, uh, but, but she was a comedian. Yeah. She was a comedian, yeah. you know. That's great. So you have done so much yourself over the years, but, um, you put out the record Porcupine Meat on Rounder, and that's a label that had courted you for a long time. Yeah, that's a label who tried to get me for 40 years before yeah. I do something. I mean, you know, uh, she wanted me, and then she got married to Ron, and Ron does keep on playing. And then he and I are good friends and still good friends. And they got divorced, and we still good friends. Yeah. And she sold a record company. We still good friends. And. So by the time I went with them, she wasn't there anymore, but I still had to contact and relate uh, uh, to, to the record company, you know. And when Scott from asked me about producing me on this, I said, Scott, I don't know what you want from me. So I don't know why I want to do that. He said, I just want you to be you. When he mm. said that, I said, you want me to be me? Can't beat me being me. I, mean, <laughs> right. I said, okay. And I said, I have this song in mind that I want to do. And I brought her some song about, this was the last song I brought him. I said, I got this song I want to do, man. He said, what is it? I said, well, I didn't tell him. He said, what's this song? He has a porcupine beat. And they laughed, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, it's interesting that you talk about, you know, how, how things received differently at different times. I wonder when you look around, I mean, in the book, you talk about the folks that you admired, some of the acts that you emulated. Uh, if you look around at the at the scene now, are there any folks that you think sort of emulate your act? Yeah, I saw, you know, <clears throat> funny we thought, but I was up in uh, Bahia this weekend. Yeah. But the first time I saw about three or four acts, man, they was good. Yeah. But they weren't different. Right. I really like the guys. All four of them had something similar to each other, but they weren't different. Mm -hmm. It reminded me when I heard Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, Jimmy Reed. All of them was good, and all of them were different. Right. I 
tried to be different and good because everybody good, but everybody ain't different. Right. And that's what I heard for the first time in a long time. Mm -hmm. And and most time the guys in the Southern Soul uh, direction, they all, when you hear one, it's almost like rap. I, I like to rap and what a lot of them doing, but yeah. when you hear 10 of them, God, you hear them all. <laughs> I mean, that's the truth. It, 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 it's not that different. But when you get one different, that's what I claim to. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's right. Be good, but be different. That's right. You know, that's right. And I hear a lot of people, the guitar players are saying, well, I'm a guitar player. Everybody sounded like but Muddy, B.B., Albert King. Yeah, it comes, it's been done before. Right. Not that it's not good. Yeah. It's just been done before, you know? You know? Yeah, and it's never as it's never as <clears throat> exciting to hear something again, again as it is when right. you knew that time. No, that's right. exactly right. Right. You write about how you were living in Chicago with your young family when the city exploded after Martin Luther King Jr. was assassinated. I'm curious, though, what effect did the— 1955 murder of Emmett Till have on you? A lot. It reminded me so much of me in the time in 1963. <clears throat> Myself and Ike Turner was coming from Rock Island, Illinois, headed back to Chicago. Two or three o'clock in the morning, a truck hit my station wagon, mm. turned it over, Myself and a drama called Robert Plunkin got turned over and we dug a hole in the ground because it's zero degree outside to get in the ground to kind of save ourselves till yeah. someone came along. One truck hit me. Another truck hit that truck until nine trucks hit. Mm. That were 10 trucks. And all 10 men got burned up. I, myself, Robert Plunk, but on the survivor. I dug a hole in the ground to save myself. So when the, I don't know what the, the sheriff apartment, police apartment, I don't know who was coming by. I could just hear footprints because I couldn't see well and I was trying to wave my hand. I could see flashlight flying in. Huh. Someone said, well, it looked like everybody else is burned up in the survivor. One guy said, no, just two niggas, they're in the ground. Leave them there. Hmm. And they left me there. Those are the things it's hard for me to talk about. And someone found us eight or nine hours left and taken us to the hospital. But we were found very early, but we were left there because we was two black men. Mm -hmm. Someone said, leave them there. But, but out of all of that, out of all of what I've been through, out of all the ups and downs, every time I'm in a valley, someone or somebody come along, lift me up. I'm saying this to you today because this interview lift me up. Mm. Knowing that someone understood and understand where I've been, talking about a book, not for the sell of it, to learn from it. Because if I can come out of where I've been, mm. you can too. Yeah. Yeah. 
that's hard to take. I think I would have wrote something a little bit different if I had waited another year because I would have wrote something different when I saw what was happened to the White House. Right. But I'm not talking about political things. I'm talking about truth for me because I've been had a foot on my neck all my life. And part of that foot was because lack of opportunities to do some things I need and wanted to do for my family. I'm not talking about so much about a black life matters, but I am talking to my people about your vote matters. Mm. I'm speaking now about something I would have put in the book that I didn't put in there if it had If I had just waited a little while until they voted on the, the Jubilee date for black peoples, I call it Jubilee because, mm-hmm. but then again, I'm concerned about you offering me a bucket of chicken because of who I am or the color of my skin but you're taking the right for my votes for me and my people's away on the other side of the fence. Not politically, but I'm involved with my family and I live in America. I'm not asking the world to feel sorry for me. Just understand that I'm a part of this world too because I am a man and I am that I am. And all that I'm doing now to do everything I can for myself and my family and my friends and people that I know and love and love me back, that I want to do everything I can while I can because when that comes a time I cannot do, mm-hmm. I won't regret what I did not do. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about the prison ministry you and your wife, Jean, run. I had it for 30-some odd years. I'm not, uh, I'm not in it as close as I like to be or used to be because of my time in the music and the places I go, I don't have time to do it as much as I used to. But I'm, I have a thing that I think one time I sung a song in the, in the, in the jail ministry. Other times speaking is about talking. I don't ever sing. And my, I talk about not politics, but I talk about mistakes. Mm-hmm. Because the things that people's in jail for, I've been there for things I shouldn't have done, and I talk about it. But when you make a mistake and you learn from it, it's really not a mistake. It's a stepping stone to what you should or should not do. Because the Bible teach me as my reading that a man that do wrong so long, you think he's right. Mm. When you think you're right and you're wrong, you're in trouble. Mm-hmm. But when you know you're wrong, you can straighten that up when you get ready. Yeah. When I see you perform, it looks like you're having as much fun as ever. <laughs> you got your trademark high energy. Yeah. You sound great. You planning to keep on performing? Yes, I plan to keep on performing. Nah, about 100 years, so. <laughs> No, I, I'm going to do it until I can't do it. I can't tell you when. I don't have no uh, date in mind that I want to 
stop doing what I'm doing, but I just want to do it as long as I can do it. As long as I'm healthy enough to do it and God has given me the strength to do it, as long as I keep my sound mind to do the things I'm doing, and I, and, and I want to, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. I, I have no plan to retire, but I do have plan to uh, do more for other people than I have done in the past because I want people to know when they read this book that some things that I did that that didn't set good with myself and the people around me. But if I had to do it all over again, I think I'd do the same thing because I did what I what I thought needed to be done for me at the time I did it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And people know that although I did some people people know, people know me. People know me. That Hey, and I'm just just kind of a guy, man. You know, when I go uh, out to my gig, you can always find me with the people, not locked up in the dressing room. Right. That's my personality. Right. And I got people around me telling me, now, Barbara Russia, you got two rambling now. You can't do this and get in there. Oh, man, I, maybe I can't. Maybe I'm too, uh, too down to earth. But no, that's my personality, man. That's my personality. Well, the only thing... I can recommend that's more fun than the book is the live show. And the book is called I Ain't Studying You, My American Blues Story by Bobby Rush with Herb Powell. Thank you for talking to us today. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you and God bless you. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about something that is hard for me to talk about. Speaking of Mississippi is a joint production of the Mississippi Department of Archives and History and the Community Foundation for Mississippi. Our opening music comes from a 1942 recording by Sid Hempel, the most storied black musician in the Mississippi Hills in the early 20th century. Our closing music was recorded in 1939 by Tishomingo County fiddler John Hatcher and included on the 1985 Mississippi Department of Archives and History release, Great Big Yam Potatoes. I'm Chris Goodwin, and thank you for listening to Speaking of Mississippi.